This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But what I really want to know is... So, Carol, it's safe to say that if Lyft and New York like City... Is reaction to that? Yeah, I was rocking. Okay, yeah, just checking. Okay, because yeah. okay, that's a good one. Yeah, okay, right. good. Thank anyway, you. go ahead. Anyway, are you going to go my way? I You messed up my really clever intro, which is if <laughs> Lyft and New York City, you know, if they were dating... Their Facebook page would say, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's right? totally complicated. <laughs> All right. Eric Newcomer. See, I got a laugh from Eric Newcomer <laughs> on that, even right. though you tried to derail me. See, but you get uh, right back on track. Exactly. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Talk about Lyft. They're adding subways, city bikes. They, they're trying to make it good in New York City, right? Right. I mean, Lyft and Uber have pitched themselves as sort of ultimate transportation platforms in their IPOs. And they still really have to deliver on that. So this is a step for Lyft in New York, an important one, adding subway times, arrival times into the app so you can pull up the Lyft app and see, you know, sort of a sales pitch against taking a Lyft almost. It's like, oh, go take the subway instead. Feels like it's an attack against Google Maps, too. Yeah, I think that's where the strategy is. It's if we can get people to really plan their whole trip in our app. And this is just part one of that process. Then we'll be sort of the key player. And, and here's a Starbucks, and here's a this, and here, right now, <laughs> right? Like, no, right? absolutely. Opens you know? the door. And so, talk to us about this complicated relationship because you know you've got taxi drivers complaining to the city. That's become a huge story here in Manhattan uh, and the all five boroughs over the past uh, year or so, maybe more. Um, you've seen ridership down as the fees have gone up and rates have gone up. Like, where are we now in this complicated relationship? It's so complicated. Uh, there, there's so many vectors to it, right? Yeah. So, Lyft, on the one hand, went after. Uh, the, the, there are these calculations over utilization. And Lyft's point is that it, we're smaller, so we're going to be less efficient than Uber. And so if we have to pay drivers more because we're less efficient, we're going to be at a disadvantage and you're going to reward Uber, right? So that's Lyft's sort of fight with the city. And they lost their lawsuit. And now it's a debate whether they appeal. And then Uber, on the other hand, is trying to fight this cap that affects all ride-hailing drivers, which limits the number of drivers in the city they have to work with. Right. So we've got both companies sort of fighting with New York, and the de Blasio administration, while he's you know, running for president, seeming to sort of still be super hostile to the industry and coming up with new ways to sort of wrap their knuckles and limit their business. Well, and that's such an interesting point, too, because you have uh, Mayor de Blasio who's trying to appease a whole bunch of actual constituents and then, you know, would-be voters around the country not being on the side of big business but being for the little guy and sort of, you know, putting his finger in the wind and saying, oh, people don't like big tech right now, so maybe I double down on that. It's a very strange position when, you know, on the one hand – to support taxi drivers, it seems like a bailout is sort of the ultimate left position right. to help taxi drivers and where some of the labor energy would be. But if you can't do that because it's too expensive or you don't want to or whatever reason, you know, Uber and Lyft, 
you know, these huge companies now seem like pretty good targets instead. Right. So they're, but they're doing this, but they are doing it without kind of the approval or relationship with the with New York City, right? Well, you know, it's it's not in a formal, you know, the the MTA throws out this data for different, you know, they're, okay. they're like, you know, the Lyft person was joking to me. There are 12 different apps that they have, you know, that, that keep track of the subway in different ways. So this data is flowing out and Lyft is saying we have this popular app. People are using it for transportation. We're gonna, you know, use our technological know-how to try and eventually build a better version. It's, it's, you know, still rolling out. It's hard to say where it really stacks up in the services you might get. But seamless would be like I think you point out in your story that you still have to whip out your, you know, subway card, right? Right. You can't use the app to say, okay, here's where I am. Exactly. And so, I mean, that would be yeah. The a big, big win. For the them. big New York trophy for Uber or Lyft will be the day one of them can say. You can ride the subway with your Uber app yeah. or your Lyft app because and that's a lot of control. The subways are getting ready, right? Exactly. Now- you see, you know, I think Union Square has the yeah. electronic. Right. I haven't used it. I'm, you know, using a card well, like everybody has it else. Too. I haven't yeah. used it either yet, but they're <laughs> yeah. but they're going to move us all over there right. eventually. Yeah. Well, and you also remind us in your story about how both of these companies, Lyft and Uber, are moving into transportation beyond cars. Bike sharing, scooters, obviously, we've talked with you uh, about before. So presumably this this also plays into this idea of we just want to get you there. Like however we're get, you're going right. to get there, we're going to help you. I mean the companies are, have – you know they came up with carpooling to, which sort of ate into their sort of X-tier businesses. Yes. And there were black cars for Uber before that. So the industry is used to cannibalizing itself. Right. right? And they're both rushing into bikes – you know, Uber, I think, has now 400 jump bikes in Bronx and Staten Island. Wow. Lyft has a much bigger footprint owning City Bike. And so, yeah, there's how can we get you on a bike? And it's I think, you know, key to this is that their business is built around getting people to an airport, getting people to a train station. You know, a lot of it is we're a bridge between the public infrastructure. Yeah, you're used interesting. To. And so however we can do that, we'll monitor. That's a really – I hadn't really thought about that because I think we think about it just as taxis. But you're right. Sort of this bridge between different modes of transportation is a really interesting uh, way to think about it. Eric Newcomer, startup reporter, the man for <laughs> all things uh, Lyft, Uber, and so many other ways that we're moving around. You can't count on me like one, two, three. You know, it's been a busy week, and that's Fed stuff. That's going on. And then that's been among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, and so is this next one. Uh, It's about a former Steve Cohen protege. We call them Cohen Cubs, uh, helping out his former boss when it comes to performance. Uh, Katya Porskansky is investing reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Steve Cohen, everybody knows who he is, right? Big name in the hedge fund. Uh, universe. Um, but Gabe Plotkin, not so much. Tell right. us about him. Gabe Plotkin worked for Steve Cohen for about eight years, and he um, was one of his favorite traders. He has a very intense, he's known for having an intense focus and being really well researched in his positions, and he manages now about $7 billion, so he's not a small potato or a small fry by any means. Um, he's up 44% in the first half of the year, which is just killing it. And it's really, it's really hard to kind of make that kind of money when you're managing $7 billion. It's one thing, you know, when you hear a manager's up 44 hours, oh, well, he manages $50 million, $100 million. $7 billion, that's quite a feat. 
Um, and he holds some positions. Um, I was going to say, what do we know about his? Yeah, what we, I mean, of course, it's always really hard uh, to know w- yeah. what these uh, what these managers are holding. Um, we know that at uh, the Iris Zone conference a couple months ago in New York, he spoke, and uh, we actually live live blogged him, and <laughs> so we looked back at what he said at the time, and he he had said that he was. Um, he was skeptical about mall REITs and Tesla, and obviously Tesla's down like twenty two percent this year. So if he was, short, he never explicitly said he was short Tesla, but it kind of put you know put it together. He would have made money off of that. And then he he is according to regulatory filings, he's long. Um, his biggest positions are Netflix, Las Vegas Sands, and World World Pay. And I mean those are I mean, World Pay is up. 74% this year and then the uh, Netflix and Las Vegas Sands are both up about 30 so it's interesting too that in a in the market that we've been in he's been this successful being heavily short he's um yeah he's got shorts he's he's made money on his shorts this year um and uh he's he's been successful in those positions before he said he has a team he has his team has analyzed 500 companies um wow. Uh, very thoroughly, and he uh, and 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 he also has it employs a team of data scientists to look right. at things in the long term. Which, of course, now kind of everybody has to have a team of data scientists. But it's still always you know good to keep track of who's looking at things, both in the micro and the macro. Seventy um, yeah. percent of his profits coming from shorts. That's um, fascinating. That well, actually, that was in twenty fifteen. Uh, oh, in 20, yeah, oh, 2015. But uh, but yes, it, he's oh, he's had in a the, in the first year. Yeah, oh, I got you. Yeah, Sorry. he's had a, he's had a successful run um, on both sides. And then what we also know is that Steve Cohen has about a billion dollars invested with yeah. with Melvin Cap- Melvin Capital is the name of Gabe Plotkin's firm. If we haven't, I love, I love that it's called Melvin. Melvin. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's not amazing. sure what the story is behind there. I'm like, always fascinated maybe by it's mom's maiden name, name or something <laughs> or favorite but it's better than like toy. some combination of like a color and a rock right. or something right. yeah, like yeah. Melvin, Melvin you remember Melvin. it maybe it's a yeah. middle name I'm well, not sure put it in perspective because we've talked about how this has been a better year for hedge funds but this is beyond that it's in beyond terms of performance. it's beyond I mean we have let's put it in perspective with his former boss Steve Cohen is up about 9% this year um, over the same span so he's up four times that um and and steve has steve cohen we're not on a first name basis me and steve but Stevie. steve cohen steve cohen has a billion dollars invested bear, in melvin Papa bear perhaps <laughs> yes which means that melvin is actually accounting for a good chunk of his returns right um so that's pretty so that's why we say it's probably one of his best investments this year being invested with gabe if not um if not uh, the best investment and and as you said he described uh the approach as very human intensive we have a lot of analysts and we require a lot out of them. Yes. Um, I can't imagine it's a like happy go like it's not a lot of foosball being played over at Melbourne. <laughs> who knows? Capital, right? Maybe these guys really yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, or maybe that's love, what they, they do. Maybe the that's returns. how they get out, you know, the ideas. I just want to know which character on billions is Gabe Plotkin. <laughs> no idea. That's a good question. Yeah. No idea. I know he's in there this, somewhere. I was thinking the same thing because this is the sort of thing that really is like ripped from. Oh, yeah. From not just that. Um, Plotkin was named in testimony during the SAC probe um, as someone who had received... Into Steve Cohen. Into, into, into po- Steve Cohen. Sorry, into Steve Cohen's former uh, hedge fund, SAC Capital Advisors. Gabe Plotkin was named in testimony as someone who had received 
uh, material non-public information. However, he was never named or accused of wrongdoing, totally right. cleared. Um, so it's interesting. He is a character. He is a character, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, that comes through uh, in your story. A Cohen great. Cub, Gay Plotkin, Melvin, Melvin Capital. Capital. <laughs> yeah, can't make it up. This is Major Tom to Ground Control. I'm stepping This weekend, as you know, marks the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. This massive undertaking involved many moving parts and participants. And as our economics editor, Peter Coy, writes in this week's remarks in the magazine, there is much that the historic Apollo program has taught us. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio right here in New York. And Jason and I were lucky enough to talk to you earlier in in the week about your story. It's featured in our weekend program on radio and television. It is one of my favorite stories. I've been quoting it constantly. Um, through the week. Peter, tell us about what you always with credit said. Yes. Always with credit. What you set out to do. This was your idea. Yeah. I mean, what's a business week approach to the moon landing? Well, management, it, it really was a huge victory for management, not just technology. I mean, think about it. There were over 400,000 people involved at one point. It was taking, consuming 4% of the federal budget. It involved NASA laboratories all over the country, many of which were like separate fiefdoms that were kind of ornery and like to do their own thing. It, there were Congress people who had to be brought in. Who It, it, it had to bring in contractors. Ninety percent of the budget went for contractors. And this against a background in which the country was not entirely in favor of this project at all. In fact, you had the peace movement. That what are we doing with this? People concerned about inner cities. The Republicans concerned about overspending. The tie-dye movement saying back to nature, not out in space. And so to, to manage to pull this thing together despite all those distractions and, and centripetal forces was pretty amazing. And so uh, one of the amazing things about the way you look at it is you actually take some lessons out of that, even though, as you point out, this was a long time ago, and and setting aside the idea that it was they yeah. going, it was them going to the moon, and not really us going uh, to yeah, the well, moon. Yeah. There's still some lessons that that we for can sure, take here for sure. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to hit all of them, but one clearly I want to hit is the idea importance of having a clear objective, mm-hmm. because if you're going to do something so difficult as this, you want to you want to push away all the underbrush, clear the decks, and just know what you're doing and set everybody in the direction of doing it. And that's what John F. Kennedy did in 1961 when he said that he wanted to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely by the end of the decade. So NASA, up until then, was doing many things, a lot of scientific experiments and so on. And from then on, it was like, okay, Here's what we're doing. How does this help us get to space? Right. Well, very complicated mission, right, to do it, but very, you know, specific goal. This is it. And simple in terms of just get a guy on the moon or, you know, get someone on the moon. Head back. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, for example, so there were some experiments that just weren't, were too heavy. You know, we can't carry that. Sorry. Uh, As as nice as it would be, we can't do that. Um, The military had some ideas for different kinds of rocketry that would have been useful for intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, let's develop those. Let's, you know, get a twofer here. NASA said, no, that's not the kind of rocket we need to get to the moon, so we're not going to do it. I also love the idea of embrace dissent. 
Oh, Talk yeah. to us about because I think this is an important lesson for everybody. And you know who was really good at that? You would never guess, but Werner von Braun, who was a former Nazi, actually, mm-hmm. who ran the uh, Hitler's uh, program of the, the rockets. He came to the U.S. and he became uh, uh, one of the stalwarts of the U.S. space program. And uh, whatever his past was, uh, that's a separate issue. But when he was in the U.S., he actually uh, was very good at drawing out the views of the engineers he worked with, uh, having them express any concern they have, even if they couldn't put numbers on it. Mm-hmm. And because there were problems later with the space shuttle where this attitude came in as like, um, you know, if you can't document uh, your case, we don't want to hear it. Well, you know, the world is a squishy kind of place where sometimes intuition actually does matter. And Von Braun understood that and he, he elicited it and made use of it. Well, and intuition uh, sort of leads to improvisation in in some ways. And that's another thing that you point out. And we talked a little bit earlier in the show mm-hmm. about the idea that Neil Armstrong had to improvise in a way just to land on the moon successfully. Yeah, they, the uh, intended landing spot turned out to be uh, much less tranquil than you would guess for the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> there was a crater and a boulder field. And so he took the controls and steered it past that. Seconds earlier, there had been something you've been seeing a lot if you've been watching the documentaries, this 1202 alarm, which was from yeah. a, the, the onboard navigation computer getting overloaded with spurious signals. And they really thought they might have to abort the mission because of this. And kind of at the very last second, they said, you know, we think that the computer is still going to work and reboot and, and get us where we need to in spite of that. But, yeah, this took a lot of bravery and, as you said, intuition and, and innovation. And, and a very simple example that I've been quoting, citing Peter Coy, is this idea that, you know, something broke and uh, yeah. was yeah. it Buzz Aldrin, like, jammed a, a felt-tip uh, felt pen. pen in. And a switch, about wasn't that. it? The switch. There, was a, there was a switch that had gotten broken off, the plastic switch got broken off by one of the astronauts trying to get in or out of the uh, the lunar module, and uh, it, they needed it to go back up to the command module so they could go home. Kind of important. Yeah. And that was uh, he, he didn't want to use a metal pen because he was afraid it would cause an electrical short circuit. Right. So he had his felt tip pen, and it did the job. He just jammed it in there and was yeah. able to yeah. get back home. I want to squeeze one in also because we've been having some chuckles over this as. Jason's dad, an engineer. My father was an engineer. Your dad was yes. an engineer. But this whole idea of effectiveness over elegance. Mm. Like if you look at, um, you know, some of the things that are de- designed by engineers, they're not always the best looking, but they make sense. Well, the lunar module is such a great example yeah. of that. I mean, if you look at the thing, it looks like some kid's seventh grade <laughs> science project. A <laughs> bunch of cardboard boxes that somebody stretched aluminum foil over. Thin little legs. Four spindly legs eggs and and yet why would they make it streamlined they didn't because there's no air on the moon you don't you don't have there's no there's no friction from air resistance it would be the most pointless thing in the world to make it streamlined they took that into account and just made it do what it needed to do no matter what it looked like that's right it is amazing when you see it you know when you go to the air and space museum and you see like 
huh, like that looks like something that I rushed to help my kid right. with like, to like right. make sure that, you know, he or she like turned in. Like right. I wouldn't get into that. Yeah, I wouldn't get into that, much less to use it to go to space. But thank right. God they did. Yeah. Well, it's sure. a great read. Peter Coy, love we love talking to you about all things economics. Uh, sometimes you help us wonk out. This time you helped us really, uh, I think, all get nostalgic about this and, you know, think about how so many of these lessons really do apply in our Today, everyday lives. Right. We've got, we're facing some very, very big global issues, and uh, maybe there's a lot to be learned by that Apollo 11 mission. All right, we love digging into the VC world, and Ernst & Young does a really good job of distilling it and really giving us the numbers to give us a sense of what's going mm-hmm. on. Jeff Grabo back with us. He is America's venture capital leader there at the firm, based out in San Jose, California, here with us in steamy New York City today. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. All right, so what's the top line? Where are we in the VC world? And I wonder that, especially during a week where tech, often the uh, favorite target, favorite uh, depository, as it were, of venture capital, is under a lot of scrutiny right now. Well, so the quarter just ended. We had, you know, we're on track to break $100 billion again for the second successive year. So, you know, the... Money keeps flowing, and yeah. it has kept flowing, and the, you know, we're in a momentum period. You know, when you look below that, there's a couple interesting things, because even though the bull market is running, um, we saw a decrease in private equity participation, hmm. so, which was, a, was probably the lowest quarter in about five years, which was interesting, but yet we were still about only 2% down. So This is private equity going into, into venture, venture stage companies. Yes. Interesting. Yes. And well, why do you think that is? That's hard to tell because yeah. one quarter doesn't equal a trend. Sure. So it'll be interesting to watch to see if that continues. Um, we do have a lot of companies that are fully capitalized, and right. we are starting to see some companies get out. Um, you know, another thing when we look at mega rounds, you know, rounds over 100 million, you know, we saw, you know, even though the deal count was up, the number, the, the, the amount and the attribution of that was down. So not as much money in $100 million rounds as we've seen in the past. And the reason that was, we just, the, the size and br- the depth of the rounds weren't there. You know, we, you know, we only had one, you know, deal over a billion dollars hmm. this year, I mean, this quarter. And so normally, historically, we've seen, you know, two, three, sometimes four. And that's driven a lot of yeah, volume. We certainly got used to that sort of flow, for sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, and I'm curious, too, about kind of where we're seeing the money go. What kinds of deals? What industries? What types of companies? Well, I mean, sectors are interesting, but they're really becoming the lines are blurring but it still is out there yeah um you know still being a heavy driver of that and then you know business and financial services is getting a lot of capital as well as healthcare and consumer services so you know those are consistent with what we've seen in the past those top three you said uh, according to some notes here raised 75 percent of all capital this quarter yes so that's where it's going mm-hmm. okay all right. Well, we've got listeners all over the country. Break it down for us geographically. Who was sort of winning and who was losing when it comes to different parts of the country? Well, some of the biggest. So it's interesting. The Bay Area was up. Yeah. Um, other markets we saw were down. L.A., Boston, New York were down. Huh. So is there um, any reason why? No, not necessarily. I mean, Orange County was up pretty significantly on a smaller number. But so and the world is getting flatter in the venture world because, you know, when you think about it, you know, I've done this for a long time, but you think about it, you know, back in the day, it would be easy to put money. It would be the, the mantra was, I will only invest in it if I can drive to it. 
Hmm. Then it became, oh, if it was like a 90-minute flight. Right. Now you see bulge bracket VCs have um, offices on three, three continents. Right. So it's because you can't raise two, three, four billion dollars and put it all in Silicon Valley or all 90 minutes away from Silicon Valley and make money. Seattle did well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, interesting to, you know, we were talking with Brad Stone Mm -hmm. uh, about that and sort of obviously Amazon has had a a huge effect. A resurgent Microsoft, I would imagine, has some effect there. I mean, Seattle has built quite an ecosystem. Well, and and having those successful outcomes helps do do that because you have companies, you have people who come out, they make money, they're rewarded for the risk they take as employees. They learn a lot in that process. And then they come out and then they're able to start They've companies. they got a good network of local people that they can mm-hmm. tap into presumably as well. Right, yes. Jeff. And I do wonder, because you do look at regions, you know, all around the world, all around the country. And I do wonder if, like, as you mentioned, you know, money going into um, startups in the Seattle area, is anything changing in terms of the power balance, whether it's New York, whether it's Boston, whether it's San Francisco, Silicon Valley, whether it's Seattle, in terms of where VC money is going and where really startups want to be? Well, so... On the the first part of that, you know, Silicon Valley used to be where most of the money is, and now it is starting to bleed out. And so now you're starting to see, you know, just, if, yeah. just because the, the the market has gotten so much bigger, and there has been, you know, this uprise of what's gone on in Seattle over the past 25 years. You know, New York has had a, a definite resurgence. Mm-hmm. Boston's got a very big pipeline of companies and especially you know when you look at from a capital flows there's a lot of biotech there that's a very capital intensive industry so that's how money goes when you start talking about where people want to be that's a very that could be a 30-minute conversation in and of itself because i'll give you 20 seconds (laughs) when you look at quality of life and how much it costs to live in some of these sectors um and I was just talking to Eric out there who came from San Francisco. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's extremely expensive to live there. And so, you know, human capital is the new capital. Yeah. Finding talent and being able to get people to right. live there. And so in the future, I would not – I would foresee a situation where you headquarter one place and you you – uh, build out a strong yeah. team someplace else. Right. For sure. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that place like Nashville, Denver, Austin, others. All right, Jeff Grabo, always good to catch up with you. America's venture capital leader for Ernst & Young, based out in San Jose, here with us in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So let's bring in our guest, uh, Tim Rutterow. He is President and Chief Investment Officer at Mount Lucas Management, based in Pennsylvania, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Tim, nice to have you here. It's turning out to be another busy Friday. Uh, we've got equity averages near their lows, and it feels like, once again, heightened tensions out of the Middle East. Uh, we just heard from the President a playback uh, from the White House, uh, another tanker uh, being seized over there in the uh, Strait of Hormuz. Um, how do you factor in this big macro story or well do you well i've run a macro fund for 20 some years <laughs> and uh this is what we do every day and i think we're in a very game theoretic world right we have these sort of separate events hawkish dovish deal no deal right you think about it that's the way the world operates right now you're in markets go pretty much sideways or low volatility and then you have these events like this afternoon that changes the character of things really rapidly. I think that's what's made trading really difficult in the in the recent history because it's 
it, you know, things used to be discounted slowly over time as information filtered out. Right. And as a result of the Bloomberg and a lot of other things, uh, information Online, comes out. Online, right? Information comes out quickly. There's very little advantage. But there's some good to that, too, because I feel like problems work their way often through the market much more quickly. Things get discounted really quickly. I mean, I mean, I've been a grain trader for a long time, and you look at weather gets discounted like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, right? Because maps we used to pay $100,000 a year for 20 years ago were free everywhere and available everywhere. So it's completely changed the character of the markets. So, so one of the things I have to think you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, is the Fed. And I feel like that one of our colleagues joked earlier today that uh, folks in the investment world may be relieved now that we're going into a Fed blackout period so we don't have to hear all of these different voices. I, some, I'd be one of those, yeah, yes. Yeah, some some right. in some uh, <laughs> yeah. days like yesterday contradicting their own statements in the course of uh, a few hours. How are you feeling about the Fed right now? It feels like some sort of rate cut is a given uh, when the Fed meets in a couple weeks. But what does that mean for you as an investor, the Fed's status and stance right now? I have to be honest that it's pretty hard to figure. I mean, financial conditions are about as easy as they've ever been historically. If you pull up any measure of financial conditions, they're really low. So uh, policy would appear to be pretty easy because the stock market's high, spreads are tight, all the usual things that you look at. Um, yet the Fed, it seems intent on lowering rates. They used to be data dependent. Well, they don't appear to be data dependent any longer. It appears to be an overseas thing more than anything else. Or maybe they're global data dependent. Well, maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, here's the question, right? If, they're, if, they're infl- if their inflation target is 2%, and that's being driven sort of largely. Goldman had a thing not too long ago that um, – a lot of the, uh, the the pressure on inflation le- lately has been the decline in health care. And they could re- lower interest rates to zero. It's not going to change that trend. That's a secular trend that's happening, that health care was re- you know, rising really quickly, and now it's declining. Right. If they lower rates to zero, that's not going to get any closer to the target. And if they lower rates to zero, how, that's, how is that really going to change the trend for negative import prices? I mean, I just don't understand it. How is it going to change the trend to... From you know the fact that we have this secular trend that you know, we can do so much more with our technology now for a relatively low price. So is Fed policy ineffective then? I think so. I mean, I believe I, and I'm not sure exactly who had the analogy, but it's like someone driving a car and your your kids in the back with the fake steering wheel driving the car, and they turn it and something happens and they think they're impacting it. Right. So it's I'm not quite I'm not quite sure. It, it seems to me if you look around the world. There's been a lot of easy policy that really hasn't generated the desired effect. And, uh, you, know, you know, we question that. So what, what our, you... well, I, I have a concern. The concern is, is that the Fed can't, you know, can't fall, hold 100 ping pong balls underwater at the same time. So where is it popping up? And it's popping up in asset inflation, yeah. in low vol stocks, stocks that, who, who can't grow their top line but are up 30 percent this year because people like low, we call it chicken equity. <laughs> it's uh, it's basically stocks that, um, you know, have a, have a pretty regular dividend and everybody knows their name, so they buy them. Right. And they're relatively low volatility. And so does that just make it a case where you've got to pick stocks and pick them more carefully? You do have to pick. We pick, we took, in, in our large cap value program, we picked two baskets of stocks. Um, we picked deep value and we picked low vol momentum. Low vol momentum has killed it this year. 
deep value has been creamed. What does low vol momentum look like? Well, it's a high sharp ratio of stocks. Stocks that do really well, have done really well. We don't like high momentum stocks because they tend to get the Netflix effect, right? Yeah. Because everybody's in them and they have a lot of momentum. Chasing in the, it, yep. Right. But low vol momentum like, is a stock like Cintas, hmm. right? Which has been, you know, because of the growing economy, it's had relatively low volatility and has grown really good, has great earnings the other day and happened to jump yeah. a lot. But, but that's a stock that's kind of under the radar. So you're in the market, yeah. you're finding opportunities. Yes. Can this rally then continue? Just got about 20 seconds here. I think it's going to shift, right? I'm, I'm actually right now a little bearish. It looks a little oh. toppy to me. Okay. Um, but I think that, I think there's, this is a hackneyed expression, but I think there's a historic op- opportunity in deep value. All right. That was fun. Good. Chicken Come. equity. Chicken, Chicken equity. equity. I'm, twi- yeah. I'm tweeting that out. Yeah. Tim <laughs> gotcha. Rutterow, um, fun to get some time with you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. President, Chief Investment Officer at Mount Lucas Management, based in Pennsylvania, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.